And please join me in prayer. Holy Father, now as we look into your word, I pray for your wisdom, Father, for your truth. Father, I pray for your anointing. Help me to speak what you want me to speak. Not my words, not man's wisdom, but the wisdom we gain from your word, from the Bible. Father, may this be edifying to you, or edifying to the the people here, may be worthy of praise to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 8. And while you're doing that, I know that some of you I haven't seen for a couple of weeks and you're looking at me and you're going, there's something different about that guy. And you're right, you caught me. I'm not wearing a bow tie this morning. <laughs> it's a little hard to tie one right now. In fact, it's a little hard to tie my shoes right now. And my wife has to do that for me and then she has to double knot them so in case they come undone, I don't have to ask a stranger to tie my shoes. <laughs> What I have under this thing is a brace. Um, It is keeping my arm locked at 90 degrees. I ruptured my bicep. Um, What that means is I tore the tendon that connects the bicep to my forearm. I just tore it. So I've had surgery to repair it, and now I'm just wearing this thing to to protect it, um, to protect the repaired tendon. I have to wear it for six weeks. Um, I'm, I'm about two and a half weeks, and I'm already clawing the walls. But the reason I wear this is so that that tendon doesn't fail so that the surgery doesn't come undone. And if I don't wear the brace, I do so at my own peril. And I I, I take a big risk. Well, as Ron was preaching last week, he was talking about the armor of God, and I immediately drew an application to that. I I saw what was going on, and and you recall what the the passage talks about. It talks about standing against the schemes of the devil and and withstanding the evil day. Well, as I I thought about this, and I thought about a, a practical application I could see, um, like my arm, my relationship with God has been healed. First Peter tells us that by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. And as my arm needs protection, well, we need protection from the enemy. The enemy wants us to fail. So God has given us armor to protect us. Much like I have this brace to protect my arm, God has given us armor to protect us. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't think of going out without the protection of this brace. It's locked in place, and I wouldn't be up here if I didn't have this thing clamped down tight and relying on it for the protection. Well, likewise, we must not think of going out without the protection afforded by the armor of God. So I encourage you not to miss his sermons on the armor of God. I think you'll find them very helpful, very beneficial, and very strengthening for you, and to know that God has provided for our protection. If you fail to understand the armor of God, you do so at your own peril, just like I do if I fail to wear my brace. So as Ron says, that's for free. Let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about this morning. Um, I want to continue to look at Noah and the, the great flood. We actually have some sun. It's just it's perfect timing, uh, the rains. And if you recall, we left Noah in the, uh, in the ark and the rains had stopped. So it's been a couple of weeks, so let's just go quickly over what we've looked at so far. First, we saw that man's sin deserves judgment. We briefly saw in Genesis 5 the generations of Adam down to Noah and his sons. And Noah, if you recall, is the ninth descendant of Adam. And remember that by doing the math, we find out that the great flood occurred around 1,656 years after God created the earth and created man. 
And in Genesis 6, we learned that the sons of God and the daughters of man were, were married. We saw that this did not refer to intermarriage or reproduction between angels and man, but rather it's a description of the, uh, that talks about the human men and women who are reproducing at will throughout the earth. We find that there was some type of perverse relationship going on, whether it was polygamy or promiscuity or whatever it was, that this was a, a wicked time in the, in the annals of history and, and what's going on and on the earth. So God said that man's days would be 120 years. Now he was declaring that humankind had 120 years left before it would be destroyed, before he would bring judgment. And God was exercising patience rather than wipe them all out right then and there. He could have, but he chose not to. And we find that the sin of man was great in the earth, and the wickedness of man was great in the earth. But yet God was patient. And not only was man's wickedness great, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil and continually. And this marked a consuming depravity. A total depravity. Now, it does not mean, as we said earlier, that total depravity means that every man is as evil as he could possibly be. But rather, it, it means that every man is completely evil from birth. All of him. Every part is evil. There's no good in him. And sin has affected all of his faculties. And this was the condition of mankind then, and it is still the condition of mankind today. And as we noted a couple weeks ago, that this is opposite what the world would tell us. The world would tell us that there are good in people, and we look for the good in people. But we know from God's word that we're born evil, that there is bad in us, and that is our default position. And then we read that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, what does it mean the Lord was sorry? Now, remember we talked about God does feel grief and sorrow over what became of his perfect creation. Just as we tell someone we're sorry to hear of their misfortune or loss, and we grieve over such things. God is grieved by sin, and I hope we're grieved by sin too. So with all of this, God determines that he's going to hit the reset button. He will, in essence, start things over. He said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Mankind has deserted its creator and it deserved judgment. Then we learned about the grace of God provides mercy. The grace of God provides mercy. And we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It meant that he received God's grace. And you recall God's grace is always a gift. It can never be earned. We do not deserve it. And that God's grace is always initiated by God. And we learned that Noah was righteous because of his faith. It was his faith that led him to obey God. His obedience was a demonstration or an evidence of his faith. And then last time we, heard, we considered God's plan. God declared to Noah his judgment on mankind. See, God's greatest creation was corrupted by sin. Man is violent and evil and so much that God must now destroy him and in essence start over. But God was going to save something, someone from the corruption and the destruction. And you recall this was always his plan. Even from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, he made a promise. 
If he'd wiped out everybody, he would not have kept that promise. So God is determined to wipe out humanity, but he wants to keep his word. And his word was that he would bring a deliverer, a redeemer, and that still had to come. Wiping out every man, woman, and child would not have fulfilled this prophecy. So by grace, God chose Noah and his family to preserve mankind. Now to do this, God gave Noah explicit instructions. He told Noah to build an ark. And then gave all the details of the construction, the type of wood, the dimensions, everything about it. And he told Noah what to bring into the ark. Told him to bring in the animals and the food. And he told Noah why he was doing this and gave Noah his promise to establish a covenant with him. And we read several times how Noah did all that God commanded him. He did all God commanded him. And then we learned of God's provision. In Genesis 7, we saw how Noah held on to his faith over the next 100 years while he was building the ark and warning others about God's coming judgment. And you know, that's really led me to marvel over what was going on because I, I sometimes struggle with my faith over a period of 100 days, let alone 100 years. And in my impatience, I don't see things happening as quickly as I want them to happen. And I worry that things won't turn out the way I want them to turn out or the way I hope they turn out. And this is why it's so important to read our Bibles regularly. See, I'm reminded of God's sovereignty when I read his word. I'm reminded of his mercy and his grace. Jeremiah tells us they're new every day. I'm reminded of his mercy and grace to me and to others. And in this case... If he preserved Noah, he can certainly preserve me. We read how Noah was to not bring not only pairs of animals to mate, but also extra animals to sacrifice. You remember that God had not given man permission to eat the animals yet. So he wasn't taking them to eat meat, he was taking them for sacrifices, the, the clean animals. And then we saw how God sealed up Noah, his family, and the animals in the ark. It was God doing the, the sealing up. And we noted how important are the words in Genesis 7, 16, the Lord shut him in. It is God who provides for your protection and your escape from judgment. Not you yourself, not someone else. It is a work of God. And he does this through Jesus Christ. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We do not shut ourselves in. We do not seal ourselves. God does this work. And recall the timeline for the flood and that it's very specific. Noah was 600 years old and at God's command, everyone, all the animals went into the ark and, for seven, and seven days later it began to rain. Now the waters came on the 17th day of the second month after Noah turned 600. And not only did water come from above, but Genesis 7, 11 reminds us that all the foundation, fountains of the great deep burst forth. So water came from above and it came from below. All the water was coming out. And we, we read of the judgment itself ed, executed on sinful humanity. The rains fell and the fountains of the deep burst forth for 40 days. But the flood was so great and so violent that it lasted 150 days. And recall that that's over the whole earth, not just a localized area. The whole earth is swirling with violent waters back and forth. Ark is moving across all these waters and everything's just in, in violent tempest there. 
And undoubtedly, the topography of the earth was changed with this, with all this water slapping around, knocking mountains aside, moving land, depositing things. And everything on dried land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And then the destruction ended. And in Genesis 8, we read that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And recall that this means that God took action regarding Noah and the occupants of the ark. It doesn't mean that God suddenly remembered, oh yeah, hey, I got these guys floating around out here. It's not what it means. It means when God remembers, it means he takes action on something. So God caused a wind to blow over the earth. The water subsided and the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the water receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the water had abated. So there were 150 days of prevailing water and 150 days of receding water. So Noah and his family have been inside this ark for 300 days. And the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Remember we said it's not necessarily Mount Ararat itself, but it was the mountains around Mount Ararat. We don't know the exact mountain that the, the ark landed on. And this is where we left off. Last time we, we had had them on the mountains. The waters were receding. And so today we're going to, let's get them off the ark. Let's find out what happens. So follow along in Genesis 8. And we're going to start with verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. This is our first point is God's commission. God's commission. The great flood of God's judgment started on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. It is now the first day of the 10th month, and the tops of the mountains can be seen. Everyone and everything stays put for another 40 days. And during this time, the earth is continuing to dry up. And Noah first lets loose this raven. Now, ravens are considered to be among the most intelligent of birds. But they're also considered unclean because they eat carrion. They eat refuse. They eat dead things. In Leviticus 11, we find that the Israelites were forbidden to eat ravens and that they were to consider them detestable. And here we see the raven flying to and fro, leaving the ark and returning. It would leave the ark to go eat, and it likely found plenty of food, plenty of dead animals floating around the surface and landing in the mountains, landing in the area. So it found places to rest and to eat before it would go and come back again. Didn't travel far, but it, it had plenty to go for. And this continued until the waters were dried up. 
Now, some find that there's a symbolism in the, the raven's affinity for death and decay and liking, likening it as an attachment to sin. The raven was happy with all the death and the destruction that was going on. See, the raven did not point the way to new life. What the raven was saying was that there is death out here. He was comfortable with this. Well, after seven days, then Noah sends out a, a dove. Now, unlike the raven, the dove is considered to be a clean animal. And indeed, the dove found nowhere to land. It doesn't land on carrion. It doesn't land on dead floating things or, or decay. It won't have anything to do with the carcasses that are floating around out there. So it returns to the ark. And Noah knows that there's no safe place out there right now. He knows that there's only death outside that ark. And that water still covers the earth. And that there is no vegetation that would feed all of the people and all of the animals. So Noah waits another seven days. And then he sends out a dove again. This time, she comes back with an olive leaf. Now, olive trees are pretty hardy, hardy species, and, and they sprout pretty quickly. So they grow at lower elevations, which is where doves fly. They don't fly at the higher elevations. They fly at the lower elevations. So the fact that the dove brought back this leaf indicated that things were drying out and, and that the earth was becoming able to sustain life again. Now, some interesting things we find about doves in the Bible. The term dove can also refer to a, a pigeon or a turtle dove. And these birds were acceptable as sacrifices. And many times in Leviticus, we read that if someone can't a, afford a, a lamb, then they were to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to, to sacrifice. That was acceptable. You may recall from, from Luke that Joseph and Mary presented Jesus at the temple in accordance with the law that they brought with them the prescribed sacrifice, which was a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And we know that doves are gentle animals. They don't fight. And they don't resist. Even when an enemy is attacking their nest, they don't fight and they don't resist. Remember that Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out, they were to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And you're all familiar with the term holding out an olive branch. What's well, it? It's a term for making peace. Next time you're holding a U.S. $1 bill, take a look at the back side of it. Don't, don't do it now. Don't do it now. Look at it later. On the back side, you'll see the seal, the great seal of the United States of America. On the right side is the front of that seal. And it's the one with the eagle on it. And the illustration on the left is considered to be the back side of the seal, the reverse side. So if you look at the front side of this seal, you see this eagle. In the talons of the eagle, on its, on its left leg, it's holding 13 arrows. In the talons of the other leg, the eagle is clutching an olive branch with 13 leaves. And we know that the 13 represents, of course, the 13 original colonies. 13 arrows, 13 leaves, 13 stripes on the flag. That, that theme runs all the way through. The arrows in the eagle's talons represent war. But the olive branch represents peace. And if you're really observant, for those really observant looking at the seal, you'll see that the eagle's head is turned 
towards the olive branch, towards peace. Peace as represented by this olive branch. And when we talk about presenting a dove holding the olive branch or bringing the olive branch of peace, it originates with this account. It originates with the passage regarding Noah. That's where this comes from. And while the raven's flight indicated only the presence of death and destruction, the dove and the olive branch or the olive leaf represent an end to the destruction and a new beginning. Now, it's against this backdrop that we understand the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove when Jesus came out of the water of baptism. The descent of the Spirit was assigned to John the Baptist, indicating that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, the one he was waiting for. That's the significance of the, the dove, of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And like a dove, this is a sign that there is new life. There is new life in Jesus. Now, there's a comparison, not a symbolism. We're not using it as a symbolism, but there can be a comparison of, of Jesus in a dove. Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was gentle. Indeed, in 1 Peter 2.23, we see when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And of course, Jesus makes us a, a new creation. He gives us new life. Next time you look at a $1 bill, remember the dove, remember the olive leaf, and remember the provision of God's mercy to Noah. And then be reminded of his mercy to you. Many of you have heard of Franklin Graham, uh, Billy Graham's son, who is an evangelist, and he doesn't miss an opportunity to evangelize. He doesn't miss an opportunity to share the gospel. And in Super Bowl week, he had talked about how the, this great challenge and this great battle between two great football teams was taking place. But it reminded him of a greater battle that took place and how Jesus was the victor of that. first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. It's now been about a year since Noah and his family and the animals went into the ark. One year with all those smelly animals. One year with all the noises that they made. One year walking around Inside the boat, not touching dry ground. One year, walking around in a boat. Talk about cabin fever. Noah takes the covering off, and he can see that the ground is dry. But he doesn't leave the ark for over a month. But it's dry ground. Why doesn't he leave the ark? Well, verse 14 makes a distinction from verse 13. Verse 13 says that the face of the ground was dry. But verse 14 says the earth had dried out. So we can conclude that the land had areas of water or mud or still a hostile and barren. But I think there's another reason why Noah didn't leave. I think it's because Noah was waiting on God. Let's look at what 15 and 16 tell us. 
Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Here we see that just as God told Noah to go into the ark, he now tells Noah to go out of the ark. Noah has waited on God. He's not run ahead of God. He's not took matters into his own hands. And I wonder how many of us would have ventured out of that ark once we saw some dry land. Maybe just, you know, to have a quick look around, see what's going on, see what things were like. Certainly to get a break from all those animals, the smells, the noise, everything. I just, I just need to get away. But Noah doesn't do that. The man who did all that God commanded him stuck to what he was told to do. God told him to go in and he waited for God to tell him to go out. This is how we're to respond to God's call in our lives. We don't just quit serving him because it's uncomfortable. We do whatever it is he has called us to do. Whether it is to serve in a particular ministry or to live or to work in a particular place. And as many here know, this means committing to and staying at the church where God has placed us. It means serving the body as God has gifted you regardless of the challenges you're facing. Noah certainly had his challenges. And he remained faithful. The Apostle Paul knew this when he wrote of suffering. He suffered afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Moses knew this even when Pharaoh was hard-hearted. He knew this even when the people of Israel complained and God threatened to destroy them and make Moses a great nation. David knew this even though he was being pursued by Saul. He'd been promised the kingdom. He was going to be the king, but now he's hiding in a cave. But he knew this. Elijah found this out when he hid because of persecution from Jezebel until God told him, get back to work. Jonah didn't get it. And he had to learn the hard way. We must be careful not to run ahead of God. But we also must be careful not to run away from God. Noah did all that God commanded him. And now God gives a new commission. So let's look at verses 17 through 19. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Upon God's direction, Noah, his family, the birds, the animals, every creeping thing leave the ark for one purpose. That's to swarm the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. This is a reiteration of the same command God gave on the fifth and sixth days of creation. God's commission was for all to leave the ark and repopulate the earth. 
And remember that we saw in Genesis 6 that God had told Noah that the reason he was to take pairs of animals, male and female, was to keep their offspring alive. And remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that we're all descendants of Seth because Noah was a descendant of Seth and we all came from Noah. Well, every bird, every animal, every creeping thing on the earth is a descendant of those that came out of the ark. Think about that. Everything that we see was a descendant of those animals that came out of that ark. And then in verse 20, we, we, read, we read what Noah does next. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Remember how God told Noah to bring seven of every clean animal? Well, here's why. So he could sacrifice to God. We read many times where men of the Bible built altars to God. Abraham built an altar east of Bethel after being called by God. Isaac built an altar in Beersheba after the Lord appeared to him and gave him the same promise he gave to Abraham. Jacob built an altar near Shechem after meeting with Esau. Moses built an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai when he, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up on the mountain where God confirmed his covenant with Israel. Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal. On the altar that Noah built, he sacrificed some of every clean animal and every clean bird. Some of every clean animal and every clean bird. For one guy, this is quite an undertaking when you think about it. He must have taken some time to accomplish this. These were burnt offerings, which means they were done for the atonement of sin. God had exacted his judgment on a sinful generation, on a wicked generation. But it did not mean that sin was no longer present on the earth. And God smelled the pleasing aroma indicates that God accepted the sacrifice, another indication of its purpose of atonement. See, we know from Leviticus 26.31 that if God does not smell the aroma of a sacrifice, it means he's refusing to accept it. And notice then that God declares he will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Despite having judged generations of mankind, God is pointing out that sin still remains. And as we said earlier, this is the condition of mankind today. And it still points to our need for a Savior. And remember, a Savior was in God's plan all along. He did not declare in the garden that a flood would overcome sin, but rather the offspring of Eve would overcome sin. God also declares that he will never again strike down every living creature as he has done. Then I want you to pay particular attention to verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Remember this verse 
when you hear all the claims about man-made global warming and an inconvenient truth. I've said it many times before, God is sovereign over creation. And that includes the earth's climate. It is God who brings rain and drought, prosperity and famine. And to ascribe this power to man is nothing short of idolatry. And here we see that God has said he will not interrupt the cycles of nature. It's right here. As long or while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is a promise of God. So now we go to our second point. God's commands. We had God's commission. Now we have God's commands. So we pick this up starting in chapter 9 with verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. First, God reiterates his command once again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in verse verse 7, he says, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Three times in this passage that we just read, Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply. Perhaps some of you may recall the, the concerns about overpopulation that were touted about in the 1970s. Some of you are too young to even be around for that. Trust me. Mankind is destroying the earth by having too many babies. There were calls for zero population growth. It was global warming crisis of the time, this overpopulation. And here we are 40 years later. And let's consider for a moment a few numbers. There are about 7 billion people in the world today. 7 billion. If every man, woman, and child would be given a 2,000 square foot lot in which to live, we would need about 14 trillion square feet of land. Now consider this. Doing the math, it means we would need just over 502 square miles. The land area of the state of Alaska is 571, 951 square miles. The entire population of the earth, if every man, woman, and child, every member of our families was given a 2,000 square foot lot to live, would not fill the state of Alaska. But you say Alaska is largely inhabitable. We can't put everybody in Alaska. Okay, with apologies to Alaska, I'll accept that. Consider this. Everyone would fit in the combined areas of Washington, Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, and California. The whole Earth's population 
would fit in those states. Or in the combined areas of Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma. Or if you even want to go bigger, Texas, Oklahoma, and Oregon. You get the picture. All those people on this earth, each having 2,000 square feet, would fill just a portion of the earth. 502,000 square miles. There are 57 million square miles of land on the earth. We're nowhere near close to filling it up. But sinful, prideful man has determined that he knows better than God. And all of this is idolatry. Oh, and by the way, in the 1970s, there was talk about a coming ice age or global cooling. See, man and his science just can't seem to get it right. Things seem to change regularly for us. From global cooling to global warming to climate change to climate chaos to eating this is good for you. No, it's bad for you. No, wait a minute. It doesn't matter if you eat it or not. Man changes his mind. He changes his thoughts. He changes his heart. But you know who doesn't change? Jesus Christ, through whom and by whom all things were created. Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in whom do you put your faith? The gods of science and man's wisdom? Or do you put it in the one true God? To quote Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now God told Noah to fill the earth. And this is exactly the opposite of what they did in the plains of Shinar, where they settled and determined to build a really big tower. But that's another story for another time. And moving on, we see in verse 2 that God has established man's dominion over the animals, the birds, and the creeping things, and the fish. And God has put the fear of man into them. This is a reassertion of God's design in the Garden of Eden when he gave man the same dominion. But there's a couple of differences. The first difference is that now the animals fear man. Remember how in Genesis 2, God brought the animals to Adam so he could name them? You could see what they were named. And in Genesis 6, God said that the animals would come to Noah to be brought into the ark. Well, no more. I can imagine that when the animals left the ark, they took off. They didn't have any qualms about going out and multiplying. There's also another difference in man's dominion over animals. Genesis 9.3 tells us that man can now eat them. And I can't help but thinking a little tongue-in-cheek that, you know what, I'd be afraid of man too at that point. But God put a condition on this. He said, while man can eat the flesh of animals, he cannot eat the blood of the animals. The blood is considered the life of all animals. And indeed, it is the blood that makes atonement for sin in Leviticus 17.11. It is the blood that purifies, Hebrews 9.13. Blood was sprinkled on the altar to consecrate it in Leviticus 8.15. It was put on the priests to consecrate them in Exodus 29.20. And most importantly, Christ shed his blood, gave his life for our sin. There is indeed power in the blood of Christ. And while it's now okay for man to kill animals, it's not okay for 
animals to kill men, nor is it okay for men to kill men. And this is what we're going to take up on the next time. We're going to stop here because I want to take some time to examine this command of God about shedding blood. And we'll look at the covenant. So to wrap things up, God provided for Noah, his family, and the creatures that were rescued in the ark. Just as he provides rescue for us through Jesus Christ. At the end of the flood, Noah found himself in the midst of death and destruction. Sin and its destructive effects are around all of us today. Just look at the evil and the wickedness of this society. And how many people, like the raven, flock to that death and destruction? Sadly, how many of us flock to it as well? Brothers and sisters, may we not be ravens. May we not be those detestable birds. Rather, may we be doves, innocent and pure and gentle, living sacrifices to our Lord, ever announcing new life in Jesus Christ, pointing others to him, as that dove pointed out new life on the earth to Noah. Despite what he could see, and however long he was in the ark, Noah did not move from the ark until God told him to do so. Neither must we stop or change our particular service. And that even means seeking to attend another church, even though things might be uncomfortable for a season. Noah was given a commission and given commandments to be fruitful and multiply, to increase on the earth. Jesus has given us a commission and commandments too. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. Finally know that there is life in the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all of our sins. And if today you don't have that life, I urge you to come talk to Pastor Steve or Pastor Ron or, or talk to me. See, God called Noah and he's calling you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the provision you made through your mercy to Noah. To preserve him and his wife and his family and the animals through judgment. Father, just as you preserve us through judgment, through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for faithfulness to do all that you command. To do so in faith, Father, for it is by faith that one is declared righteous, not his works. We don't earn grace. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't deserve it. We can't qualify for it. But just as Noah had faith, Father, we have faith. We have faith in Jesus Christ, who alone atones for our sin, who alone died and shed his blood that we may live, that we may be reconciled to you, that there may be peace between man and God. Father, let us reflect this week on all this entails. Father, let us not forget the olive branch of peace. Let us not forget how this points to our Savior. And Father, let us make use of this. Father, let the Lord Jesus Christ be ever on our minds. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen.